What if you could have a career where the opportunities are as vast as our nation, where it's not about mission statements, but a shared mission? At U.S. Customs and Border Protection, we go beyond to protect more than borders. From ship to shore, air to ground, cities to local communities, CBP agents and officers are keeping people safe. Join U.S. Customs and Border Protection and go beyond for something far greater than yourself. Learn more at cbp.gov slash careers. Time again, geek blockheads. Cuddle up Welcome with Dr. Welcome to Black Dog Radio. Me? Are you kidding me? In high fidelity. <laughs> You know what, Kirk? Welcome I have actually been doing this show. I'm just going to keep talking. This happens to me every time. I've been okay. doing this show for about six years, and it never oh, fails. Wow. Every single month, I get interrupted by the blog talk radio guy. It never fails. At some point, I'm going to understand he's going to talk. Okay, guys, it's time for the Geek Block. And once a quarter, uh, this is Carla Hoke. I'm your host. Once a quarter, I have a fightright.net show wherein I interview professionals in the way of fighting. This quarter, quarter, quarter to end the year, I have a very special guest, one I really shouldn't know as he is well above my station. He is currently on a European tour and is generous enough to call me today from Ireland. My guest today is edged weapons specialist Kirk McCune. How are you today, sir? Or tonight? It's night where you are, yeah. correct? It is night. It's seven at night. Yeah, I'm great. Thank you. Uh, it's a pleasure to be here. Okay, you have an extensive training history that I cannot begin to sum up. Give our listeners the finer points of your edged weapons heritage. I am the heir to the Bahá'u'lláh martial arts system. It's called Heron Arnisa Screma. My teacher was Grandmaster Leo Heron, who was a fighter in World War II in the United States Army in the 978th Signal Corps. One of the many interesting things about Grandmaster Verone is that he fought the Japanese soldiers in the Philippines with a sword. He fought with his sword against the katana and was successful in many uh, interactions, many fights where he was trying to make his radio calls back to the headquarters the Japanese would triangulate on his uh, position. His guys would start running to try to get out of the area. And during those retreats, uh, when they ran into some Japanese soldiers, they would engage with their blades in a unique set of circumstances where the Japanese officers who consider themselves samurai were wanting to do damage with their swords and use their swords in combat. Uh, they had a disrespect for the Filipino fighters, and although was Grandmaster Hrun was in the Army, the United States Army, he was in a group, the 978th Signal Corps, that was from the 2nd Filipino Infantry Battalion that was created specially to fight in northern Luzon uh, during the time that Douglas MacArthur had been pushed out of the Philippines. Many people don't know that when Pearl Harbor was attacked in World War II, the next day, Manila Harbor was attacked by the Japanese, and the Japanese successfully that. invaded the, the, the – I didn't know that either. That was the beginning of what led to the Bataan Death March that many people have heard about that. That was during that time. The Japanese were so successful in defeating the forces of the Philippine Army and the American Army that uh, they ended up with hundreds thousand troops as prisoners and they really didn't know what to do with them 
They tried to march them to an area that would have more resources to take care of them. But during that march in the heat of the Philippine Islands, uh, many, many men died. And it was a it was a horrible blight on a war crime level during that time. Grandmaster Heron was involved in that one year in the jungles as a commando for the United States military. He won two bronze stars for his service during that time. And uh, that's the man who taught me how to use a sword. And I've been teaching and studying this art for well over 20 years. And um, it's my responsibility to make sure that we're using our swords in the correct way and for good. <laughs> yes. Okay, well, I read up on you. I had no idea that Master Hiron himself trained you. How, Guys, you need to look up Leo Heron. I've featured him uh, once or twice on my blog. First name, L-E-O. Last name, uh, G-I-R-O-N. Look him up. It's a, a fantastic history. How on earth did you meet him? What were the circumstances? I was... Well, I was interested in learning um, the Filipino martial arts, and by luck, I saw a sign uh, over a um, martial arts school, Filipino martial arts, went in, and the owner of the school was a, reach, a recent graduate of the Heron system. There were two instructors from the Heron system that were working at the school, and a couple of other graduates that were uh, took me on as training partner, and... From then, I just I couldn't get enough of it, especially when I um, went to Stockton and met him. And he was older. He was around 85 years old when I met him. Um, but he was still very active, very spry, um, a wonderful humor and wonderful uh, teacher. Had his full faculties into old age, which was an awesome gift to you know many many people. He um, the the second heir, his his choice for the heir to his system was a man named Tony Somera, and yeah. Tony um, was was my mentor and also my teacher, and he's really the one that brought the swordplay to you know the modern guys that we're working with now. Um, took what he learned from Leo Heron for thirty years, over thirty years they were together as student and teacher, and uh, it was. Grandmaster Tony Somera, who brought uh, brought the art to the United States, uh, helping Leo Heron. So, as there, as anyone's wanting to look up the books, um, go ahead and throw Tony Somera in there too, because um, yeah, those two together were a power powerful team. Now, your knowledge of blades isn't just limited to Filipino martial arts. You have a vast knowledge of just about everything. Is that just been research on your own? Have you? Uh, worked with HEMA, you know, trainers, or how how have you learned so much about so many different types of blades? Oh, well, for one thing, I'm afraid of them. <laughs> so I try That's to true. figure out what we might <laughs> be facing. And um, so I do research, and many of our guys have been involved over the years in HEMA or different, um, different events with uh, edge weapons. And, you know, we also work with military guys who – are stationed in, uh, you know, dark places in uh, South America and places where machetes are very much used or, you know, over in, uh, you know, some of the African countries where they might right. meet bladed encounters more often. And, you know, those guys come back and say, hey, you know, 
what you taught me, this worked and this didn't work as well. And, you know, we're always trying to make certain that we're, our art is not a dead art that we're trying to preserve. It's something Correct. that's for us to use in our, in our life and for the students, a lot of our students actually do use these skills uh, in the military or in some of the um, drug intervention is right. something we were just working with some guys on that. They're working down in South America and they're dealing with guys uh, with machetes and stuff. Uh, uh, there's a lot of our guys that get stationed places where they can't use, you know, guns are not so readily available to them. So knives and, and the, the edge weapons become really important to their safety and, and, you know, what they're doing in these places. Okay, we have, I sent out a, a call to different writers that I know, and I said, hey, do you have any questions for a Blade Master? And we have a gracious plenty. I emailed you and I said, you know, I'm afraid we're not going to have any really educated questions, but yes, we have some great questions. I am very proud of every single one of these. And the first one comes from Heather Haverstadt. Okay, what can you tell about a blade just by looking at it? That's a really good question. That is a good question, Heather. That really good question. Um, what can you tell? Blades, using blades, they're made to do a function. So if you see, if you see a blade that has a, a long curved edge on it, might be um, specifically made to be a cutting edge, a chopping uh, where they're using that edge. If it were more straight with an acute sort of point on the end, then you're talking about a thrusting blade. Some Most blades are kind of in between those two things. You know, is it a big heavy blade? We have a heavy blade that we that we practice with that's called a panabas, and uh, it's a wide blade on the end of a long stick so this the whole the blade is maybe 24 inches and the stick is maybe 24 30 inches and it's used to chop uh grass or you know heavy vines where you don't want to get your hands close to what you're chopping and it's you look at it and you know that it's something to chop with because you really couldn't use it for anything else it has a flat end on it so it's not usable for stabbing something like that so I think just from that, um, or what about the ornateness of the blade? There right. are many blades that have beautiful scrimshaw. On, I was just gifted with a beautiful old blade from Germany that had a beautiful scrimshaw handle, and it was from um, a fishing village where they were able to, you know, get the whalebone. And I mean, it's old. Wow. And and there you can you can you can see the history of that. It was used by sailors to uh, loosen knots and and work on a, on a sailing vessel. And when you when you know that history, then you look at the blade, and you know you can tell the blade is very thin. It's sharp at the end, but not very acute. Um, and so you could see them putting that that thin end in between a knot and wedging that knot apart to try to get a wet piece of rope to open up. And, um, you know, then they would also need a, a nice sharp edge a little bit lower down to do cutting tasks and things that a sailor might have to do. It was, it was, it was fascinating to look at that and learn about so, it. So every weapon, every, every edged blade looks the way it does because it suits the need of that blade, correct? 
I would say yes, because think okay. about it. What is some of our oldest tools? It's It's got to be right. a knife. I mean, we've chipped pieces of stone, you know, the um, those sort of glass pieces that people are still using today where they the use for skinning tasks or right and um from that it's so useful to us that we have special knives for cutting a certain kind of vegetable we have certain knives that are going to take apart a, a leg bone of a of a cow we have certain knives that are made for cutting a uh, sugar cane you know the 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 function of the knife determines the form all right, so for writers out there who want to create a knife for their for their character, a knife that doesn't exist, do you th what is the first thing you think they should consider when they're creating that knife? I think that they should think, how far do I want to take this fantasy? Do I want to have a blade that is just, uh, do I want to describe the flowing lines of this blade? Is that important? Or is it important how this character is going to use this blade? Is there something in the character that can be revealed through the blade that he would choose or he or she would choose? Are they a uh, evasive, deceptive, uh, subtle sort of fighter? It may take a more subtle, longer blade. For instance, like the blade of Grandmaster Heron. Are, right. It's called a Talonasan. It's a 36-inch it's a long weapon. We looked at one. The other day, I showed. We, I think that I that me and you talked about this. Right. Um, right. A, a longer, uh, but if that blade is used in contact with the other other blades, that blade can be broken. But so the the fighting style of Grandmaster Roan actually suited the blade that he used, and he was, it was a very elusive and subtle sort of fighting um, because of the nature of his mission. Also, because he couldn't engage. Uh, he couldn't be injured. He had to make certain that he was the one that was going to escape and continue on with his mission. Uh, is the person, is the character a very forceful, powerful person where the kind of person that might, the edge might be a double-edged axe where he's just smashing things right and left with this with this um, double-headed axe that would be more of a chopping, smashing sort of weapon, a weapon that would indent and destroy armor by crushing really instead of cutting. Those things would, should be considered because the sword has always been considered the soul of the, of the warrior. The, the katanas were that. They, they had a soul in them that the, that the samurai would feel gave them power. And they would exercise their own power through those blades. It was a, it was a representation of the warrior. So if wow. you're going to be writing okay. characters, keep going, keep going. The, the character is going to be definitely reflected by, and even if people don't understand that, they're gonna, they're gonna. That's a that's a great tool to be able to bring out those subtle features of your character just by the weapon that they would choose. Uh, do they use a sword and a knife? That that the knife starts to become something that can be used as a lot of times they give knives to the bad characters. But really, that's actually a very proactive sort of mind that right. would use a long sword and a short knife because then they're protecting the long and the short 
and they're actually taking care of the ranges that you need to take care of, that could show a more experienced fighter just by something like that, even, you know, pairing weapons together. Or did they use two long weapons together? It would say something different about that character. I'm glad you bring that up. But first, Kirk, you're a natural writer. I don't know if you know it and if you're aware of it, but it just kind of comes off of you like a stink. You are a natural writer. Goodness. I'm glad you mentioned carrying a knife because Kristen Stifle asks, let's say you are carrying a single-handed sword, whatever kind you like. What would you have in your left hand, a dagger or a small shield, a.k.a. buckler? The buckler is a weapon, is incredible, uh, not defensive weapon, it's an offensive weapon. You can hold that buckler out in front of you and position it where your opponent looks into that space and you have that eight-inch eight round buckler and they cannot find an opening to attack you with. It is, it's an incredible sort of thing. And if they do just charge in, you can smash with that buckler. You can deflect with huh. that buckler. You can strike them with the edge. And buckler players are usually very burly in their shoulders, kind of like considered not ruffians, but very much a strong sort of a, a badger would be a good animal, a totem animal for a buckler fighter. You're going to have a fight that will take you to pieces if you succeed and you probably won't win against that person. They're rough and tumble sort of fighters because that uh, buckler is, is a smashing weapon. Some people consider the buckler the primary weapon in the engagement instead of the Wow. Sword. I had no idea. The, okay, so it's if the person with the sword and the buckler, you would say, is a badger, and they're kind of thick through the shoulders, how would you describe someone who carries a sword and a knife? I think more like a, uh, a uh, maybe like a fox. You're clever. Okay. You're subtle. You think you're thinking about, and you're trying to bait that person to come in. Oh, you've passed the tip of my sword. Whatever can I do? take this dagger, you know, into <laughs> your opening that you're leaving by trying to come at me. And the dagger is also a wonderful weapon that's used more like a fan. If you think of a fan moving uh, horizontally in front of you, um, it's okay. used more in a vertical way to parry and, and uh, disconnect the, the weapon tip to make openings okay. on your opponent and also to parry off their movement. But then that what that Dagger can be then turned from being vertical to being a horizontal strike that then the the dagger is the one that makes the contact with the opponent and very subtle and takes very little space and it almost looks like the person has done nothing. If you watch the great sword and dagger players that are still around, some of the German players and the and uh, other people uh, the Italians are the masters at that subtle play of the sword and dagger with the rapier and dagger. And, you know, the daggers that they used, damn near swords themselves, they could be up to 24 inches long, the dagger huh. side. If they're okay, using well a we... uh, Keep going. four-foot-long rapier, they kind, of, they kind of fit together like that. 
Okay, you know, you. I have two questions. Okay, when you mentioned having a dagger in one hand and a sword in the other hand, the dagger you mentioned was also a parrying weapon. That might be hard for people to understand how two hands, each holding a blade, work together. How do you make the hands work together without endangering either hand? You practice. You practice your foot off. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Okay. <laughs> but what you do, what you, what you do is you you think and understanding that you're using each weapon to its best advantage. The longer weapon, the sword, um, with a sword and dagger, is generally a thrusting weapon only, and that's the problem that you're trying to solve. That's what I should have okay. said. The problem, what, what's happening is, the sword is to solve a certain problem. It's to strike an opponent at a distance with a weapon that you can carry on your body. That that was kind of the gunplay of the time of swords, where people now may carry concealed carry gun. Those guys were carrying their swords in town. I mean, you have to think also that we're talking of are we talking about on the battlefield, or are we talking about in town as a as okay, a self defense yeah. sort of weapon or as a dueling weapon. On the battlefield, the sword and dagger was not really in play. On the battlefield, it, it may have been a buckler and a sword, mm -hmm. but, you know, on the battlefield, actually, what a lot of people don't realize is the king of the battlefield is the spear. Short, short blade on the end of a long post because it did, it was easy to learn, it was effective. And um, it was inexpensive. Swords are very expensive. Yeah. So, you know, I, I guess when I'm talking about sword and dagger and when I'm talking about sword and buckler, I'm thinking about the the um, in-town use of, you know, like a dueling adventure or maybe a uh, something like a, a self-defense sort of scenario using those right. uh, weapons. Okay, so together. what you're saying... But, you know, so what you're saying is it not, it's not necessarily that one is better than the other. It depends on the situation. On the battlefield, the buckler maybe your that's your best bet. In close quarters with chain mail, then then maybe a dagger. So you're saying it should suit the situation. It shouldn't be what your character carries all the time, correct? I think that I think that any warrior would would have the correct weapons for the fight that he was going to engage in. Yeah. Okay. He would he would pick it? And you're dead right about the armor. Um, daggers defeat armor. Uh, bucklers do not. Okay. Uh, you know, metal you, armor. You mentioned you mentioned a rapier earlier. Um, what are the merits of a saber versus a rapier, and when is it appropriate to use which one? Sabers um, came uh, the way I understand them uh, in the play that I've used them with is, is they're very uh they're very you use a lot of energy behind them you you're slashing smashing you can use the back you can use the side you can punch with the the hand guard you can um use them on horseback because of the weight and the length of the saber you can use them on foot they were used um in both those ways they're very effective sabers take limbs they destroy they smash through other swords they're very robust. Now, the rapier is actually a, a sword that was developed 
not for battlefield use, but in town. The first rapier users were actually kind of like the bar ruffians that were kind of like drinkers, and they would wear their sword, and then they would engage in like a street fight or something in the alley, you know, behind the bar over some insult. The rapier came into play there, and the rapier is a very interesting uh, weapon because during its time, the rapier actually fought every other kind of sword, sabers, longsword, um, halberds, um, spears. The rapier could it was made to fight all those things. Something that people don't realize, uh, saber, slashing sort of weapon, more of the, but it could also use, be used for hooking attacks, and, and it can thrust. There's a, a cute point on a saber, a lot of sabers. Some are not, but a lot are. The rapier is basically became a, a long ice pick where it just had, you know, a point. And if you take a long sword, which could be, you know, six feet long, and a double-handed sword that you think of the knights using, and you took a rapier and a, um, a saber, they all, they all three kind of weigh the same amount. There's the same amount of steel in each one of those. It's just where it's balanced. I am glad you brought that up balance. I know, you, you know, especially the with the rapier, is, because is like the rapier, a, keep going. So, yeah, people think the rapier is, is the same as what we know from fencing today, you know, the sport of fencing, but it's nothing like that. It's a heavy, robust sword that, that was able to take on every other weapon that it would face. And there's many uh, blade experts and sword, uh, you know, HEMA fighters, and that, that they say that they would pick the rapier if they could only have one sword to fight with. Because in, you know, even I, historically, it fought every other sword. I had no idea. I do think of what you commonly see today as a rapier. I had I never thought of it as a hardy weapon like that. You mentioned balance, and if I'm I'm not very familiar with rapiers, but it seems like the balance is closer to the hand as it is kind of with the saber. Talk about the balance of a weapon and how that relates to its use. I think the farther the balance gets away from your hand, I think it becomes more of a slashing weapon because it's going to okay. allow you to throw that tip of that weapon out there and strike a very strong, forceful, uh, useful cuts um, as the balance moves back towards your hand. So that would be, I, I think a saber would be balanced more towards the tip. Okay. That's the way that the talonasan is balanced. The, um, okay. The rapier on the other hand or, or thrusting weapons tends to have the balance more back by the hand so that you can quickly move the tip into the small spaces that you're trying to exploit so that you can get at your opponent with that tip. Because all you need to do is position, extend your arm, and, and you've, you've hit into a vital target. Uh, it's very, uh, speed. speed is important in all blade fighting, but definitely you need to have tip articulation, and that happens by the subtle movements of the hand that's transferred into um, moving that tip very quickly onto the target. Okay. You mentioned two-handed swords briefly. Mingi Lee has the, has the question. She would like to know which is superior, two-handed swords or one-handed? Yeah. I can't think question. one's superior. I, I yeah, historically superior because then I think we're back to the point of what what is my goal. 
Right. Um, the two-handed, the two-handed swords, I'm like a long sword, used in medieval times all the way up into you know later times, is a lightning fast, vicious weapon that that can be used as a spear, can be used as a one-handed sword, can be used to strike with the hilt of the weapon, used as what they call a murder strike. It's so effective, where they they actually turn the sword over and grab the blade side and swing the hilt. And the handle at the at the opponent and use it like a mace, and it, okay. it was uh, it was something in the treatises that was used all the time. You know, the one-handed sword. Are you fighting with a shield? One-handed sword might be you know the way to go because that's the you know that it's you're, you're gonna have more control of the shield and the sword. You you wouldn't be able to use your other hand because it's it's with a shield. What do you call the sword? And I may be wrong. I'm, I don't know where I saw this, but it seems like there is a sword that can be one-handed or it can be two-handed. What do you call a sword like that? A hand and a half sword. A hand and a half. That's what it is. Okay, a hand and a half. Yeah. Explain on two-handed swords how the hands work together. Um, I think sometimes when I've talked with writers, they have the idea that it's that it's a bat that you always move the sword a bit like a bat. Explain how the hands work together. Yeah. Um, with swinging a sword, you realize that um, if you swing it flatly or like a, like a bat, you tend to, they tend to break because of the um, swords are, are fragile, actually, even though they're, they're very robust, but they can be broken. One of the ways to break them is to, is to swing them without making a slicing motion. And huh. the two-handed swords, uh, katana is a, is a great example. Um, sophisticated use of the katana um, has been built over centuries. And what they're doing is a very subtle movement of pushing the top hand, pulling the bottom hand towards them, pushing the top hand away, and slashing um, from the high line to the low line creating a, a wicked sort of um, angle and movement of the blade, cutting movement of the blade that could slice slice things in half very easily. Um, so that fulcrum, that movement of the fulcrum down by your hands is actually more important than actually putting a lot of power as if you're hitting something with a blunt, in, a blunt instrument like a pipe or a bat. Um, you need to make the sword make a cutting motion. And so that's done okay. by using your top and bottom hands to make a fulcrum that the, the blade okay. rotates around that, that fulcrum. And then it can be very, very fast and subtle. You, you're not dealing with power so much in a sword as angle and mm -hmm. cutting, cutting motion. So subtle movements of making a small push forward with the hand can do great damage when it transfers that energy out to the sword. The power of the sword is in the blade, is in the cutting edge. If that's aligned to the target and pulled or pushed through that target, like you would pull or push your steak knife through a steak, bad okay. things happen to that target. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, the steak knife, that makes, that makes a lot of sense. You know, on the long blade, on the um, two-handed swords, a lot of times you will see a fuller. Um, John Stickler asked a great question, and I, I have no idea. When would, first of all, explain what a fuller is, and then when would you not recommend having a fuller? 
Well, that's a good question. Um, there's a there's a misconception out there that the fuller is what they call a blood groove. Right. Where um, the the sword is stuck in and, and it somehow makes a vacuum, which that does happen, but not for the reason that they're saying. It happens because of the constriction of uh, muscles around the blade and um, that that fuller or the blood groove doesn't have anything to do with getting it out. Um, but what the fuller is, is a bent or a de deflection of the blade, which actually makes it, which actually stiffens the blade. So you can have a lighter, um, thinner piece of metal or steel, by, and if you put a fuller in it, it makes it uh, stronger laterally, kind of like an I-beam. Okay. And, and um, that's what they were for. They were they were to make a stronger blade with less steel. And um, okay. It was a it was a in innovation in metalwork and 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 steelmakers that um, revolutionized you know the um, the the sword. Um, they were able to make them stronger, faster, better. Um, you know, just by adding that feature, you, the the and the thing you know, swords need to flex and move um, sideways. They need to be strong up and down, and the fuller uh, gives you gives you that uh, that strength without adding more metal. When would you opt to not have a fuller? Um, certain kind of blades probably don't need it. Maybe you want the extra weight, you know, like on a saber. I don't think a lot of sabers have fullers. Fullers you kind of see on double-edged weapons, kind of like the arming sword or the long sword. You'll see them on those in Western in Western uh, swords. Okay. Um, jumping to curved blades, Catherine Massengill has a question. She would like to know, how are curved and straight blades wielded differently? And I'm going to assume she's talking about a curved uh, blade, uh, like a curved cavalry sable, saber or scimitar, not like a kopesh, which kind of has a scythe kind of look to it. So she's talking about, I think, just the traditional curved blades. How do you wield that differently than a straight? Um, you know, there's some Chinese swords that are straight that make great slashing weapons. Um, but generally, I guess I'd say that a straighter blade was probably more of a thrusting blade because, okay. you know, why is it straight? Um, the the curved blades, slashing blades, the one interesting thing, we were just talking about this today, about the scimitar, is that it comes to a, a cute point, and it was actually, there's many techniques that are made to reach around the side and thrust from um, odd angles that it seems like it's a slash maybe from the upper right side, and then you turn the blade over or move it in sort of an arc where you stick that that curved scimitar tip into the target, and, and it's used to thrust in that way in a hooking kind huh. of attack. Okay. And it's wicked because you don't know where it's coming from. And it, you it, know, you never you see kinda... you never see anything like that in movies. You see the traditional kind of swing, especially when someone's riding a horse. And you told me one time, I asked you, you know, what do you see in movies that bothers you? And you said, if you've seen it in a movie, it's not real. <laughs> do you still stand by that? I, I never said that. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> what problems well, do you see in movies with blades? 
I mean, I know there's probably a gracious plenty of things, but what are something that stands out? Well, hitting the blades together as much as they do, the way they do it, edge yeah. on edge, Grandmaster Roan, and we've proven it ourselves by testing it, Grandmaster Roan said if you hit blades edge on edge, they actually stick together. The the edges <gasps> oh. stick together, and it's almost like they're welded together. And if they don't weld together, they just straight out break. Huh. At the best you're going to get hitting edge to edge is a big chip in the edge of your blade, which is weakening your blade taking away from the cutting effectiveness is something that no warrior with skills in bladed weapon use would ever allow to happen to his blade. Okay. You, you know, you'd be hitting with the side. You would be hitting the person, not their blade. You may move their blade out of the side, you know, off of their line, get off the line, knock it out of the way, but you're using the side of your blade. Or some other, you're not going edge on edge like the way they do. They played so much. It's exciting looking, say in Highlander yeah. or something. It's very exciting right. looking, but as far as blade play goes, that stuff um, is, is horrible. All you know, then the problem that they have in the movies is that they're trying to create drama. They're trying to create action, and real swordplay doesn't really look like much. It. For instance, Grandmaster Harone said that the longest interaction he saw between blades on the battlefield was two strikes. Either the person wow. struck and hit the target and finished the fight, or they struck and were countered and the fight was finished. It was that fast. So there's, okay. there's a real-world example of the speed of these bladed encounters. Now, there could have been some jockeying for position or whatever and the blades were being moved around and feints were being thrown and but the actual engagements are very quick because once that blade touches home the damage is done if the blade touches you you're going to get cut, cut to the bone he would always say okay. that we watched um braveheart and there's scenes where you know legs are coming off and he said yep that's that's what happened heads are coming off yep that's what happened and then we were watching a movie where the sword play was happening and the person got their clothes cut, right? And it just cut the clothes but didn't cut the person. And he started laughing. He says, that never happens. When, <laughs> when that blade touches you, you get cut to the bone. And I said, but Grandmaster, you got cut at and it touched and it, and it, um, the samurai cut you in the stomach and all it did was cut your, cut your shirt open. And he said, oh, well, hey. We're not talking about me. <laughs> I hate when you see the We're warrior that the has, fools, yeah. Me. I hate the war when <laughs> the warrior has a scar that starts up on the forehead and it goes over the eyebrow and then it continues on the cheek as if the blade somehow sucks in away from the eyeball and never touches the eyeball. I have never understood that scar, and you see it in all kinds of movies. I mean, how it do you even so explain cool. that? It does look, I will give them that, it looks so darn cool. But you are saying that in reality, sword fights, and you know what, it's the same with fist fights. Fist fights don't last long. Sword fights do not last long. So maybe writers need to shorten the actual sword play up and maybe, you know, stretch out what the warrior is feeling instead. But they never, it all right, talk be, about blocking. The, well, just Go ahead, no, no, keep that. going. Trying to put that into, you know, how to, okay, how do we make it? Because when we're writing something, I'm writing what should be, right? I'm not writing what right. is. 
or why would right. I, I would just do a documentary if I'm trying to create I'm trying to create something that I think it should be like this. One thing that I could suggest is that there's a lot of positioning and especially among very expert sword players they're looking for that one mistake where the person leaves an opening or they're looking how can I create this opening with with this guy oh I moved a little to the left and he left his tip down a little bit that's going to allow me to strike the tip of his weapon and slide right up his hand and last second I'll bring my blade tip up and stick him those kind of things that preparation for the engagement can be very dramatic and the movement okay. it doesn't have to be oh they're jump boom 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 and on the actions happening because that real action and the real subtlety and the real power of that blade is it is in the mind of the of the fighter the speed of the blade at that point doesn't matter you can slow that fight down to almost any speed that you want because you the the one who has gained the position in their mind can make it happen in in the in the world that's something for people to think about you're a writer i don't i don't know who told you you should pick up a sword you can pick up a sword all you want but my goodness you need to write too you absolutely do and we only have about four minutes left i hate that okay 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 and okay if you were to carry a sword every single day what would it be carry a sword every day i i would i think i would go with the with the rapier because it has distance wow it is very robust it can be used in uh many different ways um and you know the the bolos and the and the weapons that we kind of fight with are great and it's something that that i that i have um they're practical um they're smaller though you know so i mean if you're saying if i'm carrying a blade every day i think that what i see is that we're living in a time where that's done right so i think right. what i would have is the is the blade that fights everything but um what you know kinda... i'm not very imaginative Oh, yeah, clearly you're not terribly imaginative. You right? talked about going into the mind of the fighter. What what type of knife do you carry every day? Um, that would be evidence, ma'am. <laughs> I'm so sorry. No, you're can't. correct. <laughs> I, when I'm at home, when I'm at home, I carry, you know, a utility type of folder. I carry mm -hmm. a fixed blade, um, small fixed blade knife. The, the, the uh, blade is about three and a half inches. And mm -hmm. um, those are the two that I carry. And the fixed blade knife is um, carried inside the waistband, and it's 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 part of my overall, you know, um, weapon EDC for right I, the everyday carry. Okay, yeah. we have two and a half minutes. It is a tradition on this show to end with rapid fire questions. Are you ready? You only have three. Yes. Okay. Better Hit defense me. during. Better defense during a zombie invasion, a Viking sword, a katana, or friends that are slower than you? <laughs> friends that are slower than me. I have a lot of them. Absolutely. <laughs> okay. Better to battle dragons, chain mail, net, bow and arrow, or another dragon on a stick? <laughs> I want the dragon on the stick. That me too. Like me too. Awesome. Okay, best everyday carry. Oh, dragon! Yeah, best everyday carry: a <laughs> wiffle ball bat, a Nerf gun, or one of those little hand puppets of a boxing nun. <laughs> That's a tough one because <laughs> I'd like the Nerf gun for my nephew, 
but the boxing nun would be a, a classic move. It would. Can you imagine squaring <laughs> off with someone and say, I think not, and bringing out the boxing nun? Okay, we are out of time, Kurt. Thank you so much for taking time out of your schedule. Again, folks, he has been traveling across Europe, and he took time out to call the show, and I am so grateful to you. When will you be back in Texas, sir? Well, I hope soon. I love Texas, and um, I have so many friends there, and so, you know, tell Guru Rick that get me down there. I will. <laughs> I will. Thank you so much for being on the show with us today, Kirk. All right, folks, that's it for us. That's it, not only for this show, but for the year. Have a very Merry Christmas. May God bless you richly, and stay weird. Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. <gasps> no, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.